We're going to look this morning at Galatians chapter 3. Um, it's going to be a little bit text heavy this morning and there's going to be a reasonable amount of theology in it. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, theology can be a bit hard sometimes and a bit deep. And But I liken it to, you know, if you end up feeding your kids sugar and lollies and all, the, all that sort of stuff all the time, they'll love you, but they're not going to grow up very healthy, are they? And they're not going to get good nutrition. And I think if we just look at the scriptures and take all the good practical stuff and all the fun stuff out of it and we don't get into the theology, then we're not going to really grow deep as Christians and really be grounded in our faith. So we'll just read this passage through and we're just going to look at righteousness, faith and the law this morning. So Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by, the, or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Spirit, the Scripture, imprisons everyone under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to promise. And I just trust that um, God will bless the reading of this word. So, we go to the start of this chapter, it's... Just to put it in, in fairly plain, simple words, it's Paul saying to these Galatian believers, look, did you earn the spirit coming into your life by what you did or did you receive it by faith? And if you received the spirit of God through faith in Christ at the beginning, not through the works of the law, then by default the only way to continue on being empowered by the spirit is by faith and not by the law. And some had come into the, the church here in Galatia and had bewitched them and sort of confused the Galatians' thoughts into thinking that they now had to... They'd started out the Christian life by faith, but now you have to complete your growth and your Christian life by works. And Paul says quite clearly and this passage, no way, because that nullifies grace completely and it dishonours Christ. And so not only does justification, which is God declaring somebody as being righteous, but sanctification, which is to actually make somebody holy, Both of those things happen by faith and not by works, as Paul says, lest anyone should boast. So just to be, going on a little side note here, just to be clear, there are actually two aspects of sanctification. So first of all, there is positional sanctification, which takes place the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our saviour. God sets us apart and calls us, as his children, he calls us, in Christ as being holy. But then there is the progressive, God's work in conforming us to the image of Christ day by day through his spirit. That's an ongoing thing as we continue to grow and as we continue to learn about Christ, we become more like him. You see, you can't have sanctification without justification. You can't put the cart before the horse. The works come and the working out and the becoming more like Christ become, come to us because of justification. So because God declares us righteous, then he works in us to make us more like Christ. The same problem that these Galatian believers had, <coughs> I think is something that can be quite true today, that it's quite easy for us to say, well, now that you've become a Christian, you have to follow a set of rules to be accepted by God. You have to make sure you say the right things or 
you dress the right way or you read the right Bible version. And we end up getting tied up in knots trying to earn favour with God or trying to please people, trying to please people that would set all these rules. And this is what the Galatians got caught up in and instead of continuing on in faith, they were turned aside into trying to follow all these rules to gain favour. And Paul uses in verses 6 to 9, he uses the example of Abraham to show that faith and not works is the key. Because Abraham believed God. And if you would go back to Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. You see, Abraham <clears throat> had to do something. Yes. He couldn't just take all the blessings that God had promised him without obeying what he was called to do. You see, he was, yes, he was specially called by God but it required a response on his part. And the same is true when it comes to salvation today, that we can't accept God's offer of salvation without taking action. It is an act of acceptance is to believe and to believe what God says is true. You see, God could have called Abraham and he goes, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and Abraham goes yeah, that's great, I'm just going to stay where I am. This is nice and comfortable, I don't want to go anywhere. But Abraham believed the promises that God made and God said to him, you go, and he went. So Abraham continued to believe God throughout his life and so God declared him as righteous. And the quote that um, Paul wrote here, actually he's written as well in Romans chapter 4, he says... What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. <clears throat> For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's because Abraham believed God, he was justified and declared as being righteous. But then there's the ongoing aspect of it as well, that Abraham continued to believe God. And so God continued to bless him and multiply him and make the great nation out of him. And then Paul goes on to say that the problem is that relying on the law, which these Galatians were trying to be pulled back into following, places the follower under a curse. You know, nobody can follow the full 600 plus commandments of the law in their entirety 
without failing in some point of it. And in James chapter 2, verse 10, James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So therein lies the problem. You try and gain your faith and gain acceptance by God through following the law, you have to keep absolutely every little bit of it. And it wasn't possible. And the moment you failed in one point, you became guilty of the whole lot. And so you came under the curse of the law. So Jesus, Paul says, came to bring freedom from the curse. And as we'll see as we go on, that he fulfilled the promises of God that he made to Abraham, that he would bless all nations through him. And he took the curse that the law brought on himself to bring freedom from the curse. And then in verse 14, he promises to us his spirit in the same way that he promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through him. And I think the very, at the very heart of our faith, at the very heart of faith in God, are his promises. His promises are something that we can rest on. We don't just believe in anything or something completely vague. We believe their promises. They're unchanging and God doesn't take them back. And we can believe them without a shred of doubt. And Abraham's whole life was based on what God promised him. Abraham believed God's promises. And the culmination of Abraham's faith is taking up his son Isaac to offer him up. Now, if you remember that story, God called Abraham and said, go up to this mountain, take Isaac, your only son, and offer him up there on an altar for me. Now, I can imagine Abraham going, what the, what are you... Why would you want me to offer up my son? And if he goes and thinks about it a bit more, he goes, well, you've promised that I'm going to make a great nation out out of me. If I've got to take my only son and offer him up, then I've suddenly got no descendants. How can you make a great nation? But Abraham simply believed God and he said, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this is going to work, but I know you're going to bless me, so I'm going to obey. And I can imagine... Abraham and Isaac walking up there together and Abraham, Isaac, you know, he says to him, we've got fire, we've got wood, we're going to make a sacrifice, but we've got no animal to sacrifice with. And remember Abraham's response was, God's going to provide a sacrifice. Even that shows that Abraham believed that God was going to come up with something and Isaac accepted that you know as a parent you can't as much as you might try you can't lie to your children because they figure it out pretty quick so what Abraham said to Isaac he must have said with such conviction that Isaac believed him and then we know that God did actually provide the lamb for the sacrifice so Abraham even in that that was the culmination of his faith that he believed him And then God swore to him saying, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
and through your offspring or seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So that's a little bit of backstory that he's given as to the fact that faith, that righteousness is based on faith and not of works of the law and under the covenant that God made with Abraham that he would bless them. And then as we go down in the chapter, you see that Paul says that he is going to use a human example just to explain the covenants and how God made the covenants. Unlike covenants which we, we make today, which, you know, when you sign a covenant, it can be altered fairly easily. You um, Just a couple of signatures and things are sorted out and, it, and it's all changed. Um, under Roman and... Um, so under Roman, Greek and Jewish laws, there were kind of testaments or dispositions of property or inheritance arrangements or oaths which cannot be changed or challenged by addition. And if these covenants can't be changed, why would the Almighty God decide to change a covenant that he had ratified? How much more is his word secure and the covenant that he's made accepted and valid and continuing? God's promises, we see, were made not just to Abraham, but ultimately to his seed, which Paul explains here is Christ. Not to all Abraham's descendants in the sense that the ultimate blessing of the world was going to come through them, but through his ultimate descendant in Jesus Christ, God's promise that through him all the world would be blessed and it's almost as if at this point Paul's giving these false teachers these Judaizers who were bringing trying to bring the law back in it's almost as if he was giving them a bit of a slap down saying to them you know you say that the law is the most important thing after salvation as if the false teachers were saying that God gave the law 430 years after Abraham so that the nation would live under the law. Why would he go and do that if salvation was just simply by faith only? Surely these people were saying, yes, Abraham had faith and God promised to make a great nation from his descendants, but now God has to give this nation some rules to follow so that they can guarantee and maintain the blessing that comes from that promise. So you have to work hard in your Christian lives by obeying laws so that you can grow and mature and that you can maintain your righteousness before God. Isn't that just exactly the same thing that God did by giving the law to add to what he promised to Abraham? that he's just put an ad on and said, this is now what you've got to do. Paul had to, we see here, fight really hard against this false teaching. And he says, no, God didn't give the law to annul the promises to Abraham because he had ratified those promises. And if God's promises are unchanging, he's not going to say, hang on, I've got to tweak that a little bit and add this. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, 
I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If inheritance could be gained by the law, then the promises of Abraham are null and void. So, therefore, if they're null and void, by default the work of Christ was a waste of time because righteousness is no longer based on a promise but by obeying the law. But God gave the inheritance, the promise that all nations would be blessed and ultimately eternal life to Abraham by a promise. So then, what is the point of the law? Why, why give the law? If inheritance is received by faith, then what is the purpose of a whole bunch of rules to follow? Everybody loves rules, don't they? Why are rules given? Well, rules are given for to be obeyed. Why does the government have laws and rules? For people to obey. Why do we have rules in our families? Because we expect our kids to obey them. Obedience to God is always key. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to 18... God says to Abraham after his obedience and being willing to take up Isaac to offer him, he says, because you have done this, I will indeed bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. By your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice. And in Genesis 26 verse 4 and 5, God says to Isaac, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven And by your descendants shall the nations of the earth bless themselves because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. And in Genesis 18 verse 19, God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may charge his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So when we read these verses in the context of the promises of God to Abraham, it would seem that the covenant that God made with Abraham wasn't completely unconditional. God's ultimate blessing does depend on obedience, but not on the works of following the law or works that are aimed at earning God's blessing. As Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel Chapter 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You see, blindly following a set of rules to try and gain God's favour out of obligation achieves absolutely nothing. What God desires is obedience that comes from the heart. And the obedience on which salvation depends is just simply the way a person acts in when he's really trusting in the promises of God. And God, Abraham's life displayed right from the moment God called him to the end of, the, end of his life that he believed and that he trusted God and trusted in God's blessings. 
And under the law that was brought in 430 years later, obedience was still the key to God's blessing. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, it says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep you, will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. And so basically the commands of the law were simply a general outline of what a life of faith would look like in the nation. And in Deuteronomy 31, it says, When Moses had finished writing the words of the law of this law in, the, in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. See, this tells us there were consequences for the nation for not obeying the laws that God had commanded. So God desires obedience. In the same way as parents, we desire obedience from our children. God desires obedience from those that he calls his children. And a willingness and desire to follow the law come from a faith in the promises that God had made to the nation. You see, faith and works throughout the scripture have always gone hand in hand. We can't separate the two and say, well, I've got faith, so now therefore my works don't matter. Or, you know, I'm just going to worry about works under the law and I don't have to have faith. The two things go hand in hand. And James says in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So is faith by itself. If it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe, God, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone and in the same way 
Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. You see, with both covenants that God made, the covenant he made with Abraham and the covenant he made with the nation of Israel under the Mosaic covenant that he, that he gave through the law, relationship was at the very heart of it. A relationship that God wanted with the person he was making the covenant with. He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but then he had some expectations on Abraham's part that he would believe him and that he would follow him and that he would obey him. The same was true with the nation of Israel when he gave them the laws. He said, I'm going to bless you, but he expected them to obey and follow the law in return. You can't have, to go into terms today, you can't have a marriage covenant without a relationship. That would just be really weird. I'm going to marry you, but I'm not actually going to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to take all the benefits of marriage, but I'm not going to talk with you or do anything for you. Or maybe somebody might say, I'm just going to do as I'm asked to try and, you know, get in your good book so that I can have an easy life. That's not a good foundation for marriage and neither is it a good foundation for a relationship with God. We can't expect everything to be a one-way street and get all the benefits without doing something on our part. In a covenant relationship, there are rules of a relationship, expectations on both parties to fulfil, well, obligations for want of a better word. God had promised blessing, spiritual, both spiritual and physical blessing, but he asked us and he asked Abraham and he asked the nation of Israel to fulfil their part and fulfil our part by following his commandments. So are these covenants that God made conditional or unconditional? Well, they're kind of both, which is a little bit hard to explain. See, God makes unconditional promises, but then he gives conditions to those promises, as we've just seen in the examples we've given. But then he knows that we can't meet those conditions. So we're kind of stuck because the law shows that it's not possible to actually fulfil those conditions. So God gives us the faith to be able to obey. So he mandates the condition mandates the conditions for obeying his covenants, but then gives us the ability to fulfil those conditions. And so it's always been about his grace and providing for our needs. So from God's point of view, it's unconditional, but from our point of view, it's conditional, but God helps us to meet those conditions. So it kind of does your head and you just end up going around and around in a circle. So Paul goes on in verse 19 to explain why the law was given. So the law was put into effect to reveal what sin is. Was put into effect to control the uncontrollable work of sin in our lives. 
And the law, as we saw, was put into effect so that we might know that we cannot possibly follow it and be made righteous by it. And it was given to lead us to Christ, to point us to Christ so that we might put our faith in in him. So the law was put into effect until God's glorious purpose was accomplished, until Jesus Christ had come. And in verses 21 verse 22 here, Paul says, well, the question would then come, isn't the law then contrary to God's promises? In no way. Because if righteousness was found by the law, then yes, it showed that the law, the law showed us, sorry, if righteousness was to be found by the law, then yes, it would be contrary to the promises of God. But the law showed us that it wasn't possible to please God and obey his laws. The laws merely showed man's heart and kept us imprisoned and tied up in knots and held captive under the law. Because the law only modifies behaviour and not the heart. And if you read to, to read verse 23 in the um, RSV, uh, which I think is the Revised Standard Version, you could read it that, now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. So the law restrains us. The law restrains the outward working of sin. So the law modifies behaviour. And it doesn't matter how pious or good or, you know, followed the law really, really hard like the Pharisees and made it the focus of their life. It didn't matter how much you did things outwardly. They could never gain the cleansing of the sinful heart. It didn't change the inward heart. See, the Gentiles... The other nations other than the Jews operated in a totally unrestrained way, inwardly and outwardly, but the Jews were restrained outwardly. God gave them these laws to modify their behaviour, controlled the behaviour of the person but not the heart. So then there's a problem. So the actual root of the problem, the sin problem, needed to be solved. Sin needed to be eradicated from our hearts and to turn our hearts back to God in obedience to him. But the law couldn't do that. But Jesus did. Jesus solved our sin problem and fulfilled what no law could ever do. Jesus is able, by fulfilling the law, to forgive our sins, by crucifying our old nature on the cross and by raising us up with him as a new man or woman or as we read well it doesn't matter we're all one so there's neither man nor woman raised us up together as one full of the holy spirit who guides us into god's truth verse 24 paul says here the reason the law was given was to lead us to christ to point us to the one who fulfilled the law the promised seed of abraham through which all the world was going to be blessed The law showed us what's right and wrong, showed us our need of a saviour and points us to Christ who justifies us through faith in him. The reason why we can be declared righteous is because Jesus paid the penalty that should have been ours. And now that we're justified in him, we're no longer enslaved. We've been set free. We can now have freedom of our hearts and minds. You know, under the law, it was as if the law said, 
Do this, follow these laws, and you'll have life and you'll have God's blessing. But now when we have faith in Christ, it's like it's been reversed. Now you have life, now you live, now go and do this. Don't hear me wrong, the law wasn't bad and the law isn't bad. The law wasn't something that enslaved the Israelites. God graciously gave it to the Israelites as a roadmap to please him. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus didn't come to bring freedom from the law, to do away with the law. You're no longer under the law. You're free now. You don't have to obey all these rules because the law wasn't what enslaved the nation. The law isn't what enslaves people. It's sin that enslaves people. It's sin that puts us into slavery. And what the law did was show us our sin and show us that we're enslaved. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from sin, not freedom in a set of laws. He came to release us from sin's power and enable us to live a holy life before him through the Spirit. So the law, as we saw before, merely modified outward behaviour. But Jesus has changed our inward nature and that change changes our outward behaviour. The old covenant was external, but the new covenant that Jesus has now brought us into through him is an inward one. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. See, the basic principles of the law haven't changed because God's nature hasn't changed. Yes, some of the little nitty-gritty bits have, but the, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they haven't changed. God's nature is still the same. Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment of the law, and his response was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, again, it's about relationship. Relationship firstly with God and then with others. That's what God's all about. He's all about relationship. He wants to have relationship with us. Here's a kicker at the end of the chapter. Just in closing, as Paul comes to the end of the chapter, Paul says, now there's a positional change as well. Now you are children. You are no longer slaves slaves to following the law. Now you're God's children. See, slaves had no right to a part in a family, but children have full rights. In a household with slaves, there's a pecking order. The parents, the children, and then the slaves are down the bottom. But children come before slaves and all children are equal in the eyes of parents. In the eyes of children, not all children are equal. Oh, you're the favourite. They're the favourite one. In God's sight, we are all equal. There's neither Jew nor Greek. 
slave nor free. There's neither man nor woman. You see, God doesn't care where we've come from. God doesn't care about our background. He wants us in his family. And once we're in his family, we're all equal. And so we shouldn't care where other people have come from either. And I wonder, do we think, and this has been a challenge to myself as I've been looking at this passage, do we look at other people and as Christians, do we put some people up on a pedestal above others and look down on other people because they're not following the same? Or when we go out and preach the gospel, do we look at some people and say, well, they're too bad a sinner, they've done too, ter- too many terrible things, they don't deserve the gospel, so I'm not going to preach to them. Well, we've become joint heirs with Christ. We are, have been set free to follow him and to be a blessing to the world around us. Because if we're the children of God, then sh- shouldn't we be doing what Christ did? He became a blessing, well, the one through, all, through who all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. So if we are his children, then we should be a blessing to the world around us. How do we actually let this practically work? Well, it's by allowing the Spirit to work in our lives and to be realising our position where we are in Christ and his family. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God declares us as being righteous. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. He gives us the power to follow him and then he expects us to work for him and he will work through us to be a blessing to the nations. Lord, we just thank you that you loved us and you gave yourself for us. We thank you that we can live in the power of the Spirit to obey you. Just help us to, this week as we go out into our lives, to follow your call and to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to the people around us. Help us to see others as you see them. Whether they're Christians, to see them as your children, that we are all one in Christ, that we're all equal. Or those who don't know you yet, to see them as those who are still enslaved to sin and to bring them the good news, the glad news that you came to give freedom from sin and to bring life. Father, we thank you for the life that you've placed in us And we pray that that life would flow out to others this week and that we can be a blessing to others. Thank you for being able to look into your word this morning and we just pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen.